Father in heaven, we do thank you for this day. We, we see it as such a privilege and such an opportunity to be able to gather here and to worship you. Uh, God, we acknowledge that there are so many times in life where it does seem as though the darkness is stronger, and yet may we remind one another this morning and, and really each and every day that nothing is greater or stronger than the mercy that we have in Christ, and that those mercies for our struggles, for our failings, for our mistakes, for our shame, for our, our, our wayward hearts, God, they're new every morning. And so for that, Father, we give you praise. And, and Father, we want to never lose sight of that, and so we come consistently as a body of believers clinging to this sacred text. May we never lose sight of, of the, the weight and the power that comes with studying your word, recognizing that it's more than just a weekly message or a sermon. God, help us to see it as the life-giving truth that has guided your people for thousands of years. May we approach your scripture with a tremendous reverence, with, with a sense of awe, with a humble submission, God, that is eager to hear what it is that you have to say to us so that we can once again see your mercies clearly. And so as we approach these scriptures once again, Father, as a community of faith, God, we pray that first and foremost your spirit would envelop our hearts, God, that you would truly inhabit this space, that this would be more than just an intimate time with one another, but an intimate time with you. God, that you would speak clearly, Speak directly to each and every one of us and help us to hear what it is that you want us to hear. We love you, Father. We cherish this time and now we offer it to you and to your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Okay, as we get started today, if there was uh, one premise, one central idea that kind of sets the structure for today's message, it's the idea that authority determines meaning. Okay, and we, we've talked a little bit about that before, but but that's essentially the, the premise that, that I want you to latch onto is that this concept that authority, whatever authority exists in your life, is ultimately going to be what shapes and determines meaning for your life. Let me give you a few examples. When, when you're growing up as a child, you have a parental authority. And that parental authority has that authority because they are uh, in charge of your well-being, and so they're going to set rules, they're going to set expectations, they're going to set all these different things and, and exert that authority over you. But at the same time, because they have that authority, it will be that source of authority that determines your understanding of meaning and life, right? It's, it's your parents that help establish values, integrity, right? Uh, all the ways in which we try to understand what's valuable, what isn't, our understanding of ethics, all those different things come from identifying a certain authority that's going to speak into those things. And it doesn't just happen at home, it happens at work, it happens at school. It can happen with whoever's the, the CEO of your company or your direct supervisor employer, right? They're going to be the ones that set the course for the vision, the culture, the the whole focus, the values of a company. You're gonna see the same thing within a classroom or within a school, right? The authority determines meaning. And so we, we look at these certain authority figures or, or places, and they're gonna be the ones that we go to to often answer some of the more difficult questions that we encounter, whether that's, again, questions that we see at home, we see at work, we see at school. And so authority determines meaning, which leads to a fairly important question. What is your authority? Who is your authority? How is it shaping your understanding of meaning to life? How is it helping you answer difficult questions that you're inevitably going to encounter in life? Right? We need to really evaluate 
who that authority is or what that authority is to determine meaning. So, so if that's the premise, here's the natural progression, the obvious kind of conclusion is that if we are believers, if we're followers of Jesus, then within the context of Christianity, our statement to that is, well, God is our authority. He is our creator. He is going to be the one that helps establish meaning for my life. And God has revealed himself perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ, who in Matthew 28 declares that the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so we see both God and his sent son Jesus as the voice of authority for our lives to give us the meaning and the answers to questions that we so desperately need. Okay? And so that's the obvious conclusion. That's the premise. Here's the problem, right? Is that if God is the authority, if Jesus is the representation of that authority, then the natural conclusion for us is to go to his word. Right? That's how we're going to understand what it is that, that gives us answers to questions or gives us meaning to life. The problem is that increasingly fewer and fewer people are going to the scriptures, right? I mean, like it is, it is an ongoing problem of biblical illiteracy that exists both within and beyond the church, okay? There is a recent study that was done by the American Bible Society uh, just this past year, and they came across uh, some pretty interesting statistics that I want to share with you this morning. Uh, the headline was roughly 26 million people have either mostly or completely stopped reading their Bible. Okay, and let me explain to you where they get that number. They, they do this survey, and uh, they do it every year. They do this annual report. And part of what they documented was that in 2021, that number of Americans that read their Bible at least three to four times a year. Okay, so we're just talking about a couple of times a year, but more than once. That number typically was 50%. It was 50% in 2021, and that was the historical kind of trend that had been around for at least a decade. From 2011 to 2021, about 50% of Americans read their Bible three to four times a year. But last year, in 2022, that number dropped to uh, 11 percentage points, to 39%. And that's where they arrived at the number of uh, 26 million Americans. Right? So it was the sharpest decline on record since they've ever really kept up with these sort of statistics, according to the American Bible Society. Now, you may sit there and go, well, that's an interesting statistic, but if you're only reading your Bible three to four times a year, how engaged and how serious are you with the Scriptures anyway? Right? I mean, do you really see it as authoritative if you're only consulting it maybe a couple of times a year? And, and the reality was is that even if they turn their focus toward those, towards those who are more engaged as readers of the Scripture, you still saw a decline, right? That, that before the pandemic... Daily Bible readers, right, people that said they read their Bible daily was at about 14% of Americans. But after the pandemic, most recently, that number dropped to 10%. So I think they said around another 13 million, based on this study, of the most engaged Bible readers have said that now they're reading God's Word less. Now that was remarkable to me as I read that, because what that says is that literally as we faced a global crisis and had more time because there were shutdowns, and you didn't have to go to work. You could stay at home. We read the Bible less. If there was ever a, a situation or a time where you should have poured into it even more, people actually went away from it. And so one of the problems that we see in our churches and in our society, 
The reason so many people are struggling with arriving at appropriate meaning and, and understanding really how to answer some of the tough questions that we're presented with in society is because we're detached from the authority that we're supposed to have. We're not reading the Bible. Biblical illiteracy is a huge problem, which is why it's not hard to find numerous examples of churches and believers who are demonstrating behavior that is very counter to what Scripture teaches. Right? There, there's a massive problem with sound biblical interpretation today. And so part of that's because people just aren't reading it. And one of the reasons they're not reading it is because people have forgotten just how beneficial it is to actually read the Scripture. Man, even, even if you wrestle with doubt and questions about its accuracy and its legitimacy and all those different things, man, there, there are so many reasons the Scripture has proven to be beneficial. Let me just give you a few examples that came from the Center of Biblical Engagement. They did a study recently, and they said that if anyone reads their Bible at least four times a week, right, at least four times a week, feelings of loneliness drop by 30%, anger issues decrease by 32%, bitterness in relationships plummets to uh, by 40%, and feeling spiritually stagnant falls by 60%. Just read the Bible and things change, right? And so there's an inherent value just in reading it, but, but we're increasingly not, which means we're struggling to answer these questions, to find meaning, and, and really what it demonstrates is that we don't truly see it as authoritative, right? And so Part of what I want us to consider this morning is that if authority is going to determine meaning, and we as a society and as American Christians are creating a distance from the Scripture, man, we got to re-engage. we got to reconnect with the Scripture and let it be the authority that it really needs to be in our lives. So let me just take a brief moment before we get to the text this morning and explain what that looks like here at our church. And I want to make sure we have a clear understanding of, of how we try to pursue that, Okay. So when you look at the scriptures, we talk a lot about discipleship here at UBC because when you look at the scriptures, it defines us as disciples. That's our identity. We are disciples. Somebody that follows Jesus is referred to as a disciple. We are commissioned to go and make disciples. So you hear that phrase a lot. We're disciples who make disciples. And so, so much of what we try to pursue is in the umbrella or the lens of this idea of discipleship. And so when we start to figure out, okay, well, how do we how do we pursue discipleship in the context of our church? We'll use terms like community teaching and accountability, right? And, and those become pretty critical ingredients to how we want to read the Bible. And, and that's, I think, the other piece to this equation. It's not just read the Bible. We need to learn how to read the Bible. And so we read, we read the Bible through the lens of discipleship, letting it fold, mold us and form us. And we do that by understanding some of these ingredients of community teaching and accountability. So, so let me explain that. How you read the Bible should occur in a community, within the context of community. That's a very important piece to it, right? The Holy Spirit is going to ultimately be what, what leads us to greater understanding and clarity. It's through the lens of Jesus Christ that we approach the Scripture, but it has to be in the context of community. Let me explain to you why that's so important. In society today, truth has increasingly become subjective, right? It's like ultimate subjectivity. You hear it all the time. You hear me talk about it all the time, that the mantra of our culture is, you have your truth, I have mine. You do you, I'll do me, right? And, and it sounds great, and it's completely flawed. It, it does not work. But that mantra has worked its way into churches, and it's worked its way into the minds of believers. And here's how we dress it up in Christianese. We say, well, that's your interpretation. You have your interpretation. 
I have mine. And it's the same thing, right? Because when I say that, essentially what it does is it allows me to get out of anything that I don't like that you have to say. Oh, well, that's just your interpretation of the scripture. I have mine. It allows me to use the Bible to get it to say whatever I want it to say. And the way we combat that sort of tendency is by interpreting the scripture in the context of community, right? We have to understand, not just with those who we sit next to in the pews, though that's a huge part of it, but community that builds upon the larger network of Christendom, relying upon theologians of current and ages past, right, to, to consult the work of scholars, to, to look at biblical under, uh, interpretation through the lens of community, right? So that's one huge aspect of it. Then we talk about teaching, right? Teaching means actually reading the word of God, right? A lot of times our tendencies, again, even within churches, is to have Bible study after Bible study where really we're just reading somebody else's book about the Bible, right? We've read a lot of Francis Chan and Beth Moore and all these other things, which are great. I'm not saying forget them. That's part of community. But when we just read them, then that becomes a problem, they should complement our reading of scripture, not replace it. And so when we talk about teaching, we're saying read the scripture. Everything you encounter here at this church should expose you to scripture, right? No matter what ministry or what avenue you're getting engaged with. And so that's a huge part of teaching. And that, that leads us to the third element of accountability because what does Jesus say at the Great Commission? He commissions his disciples and he says, go into all the world, make disciples, baptizing them, and then what? Teach them to what? There it is, okay, just make sure you're awake. Teach them to obey, right? It's obedience that he's after. And that's a huge part of accountability, that when we read the word, we say, okay, what does this mean for me, and how do I apply it to my life? There, there's an illustration I heard from Francis Chan, just called him out a second ago, I'm gonna go ahead and use him, uh, that I heard from him several years ago that I loved. I thought it was great, and, and I think I shared it with you before, but I'll use it again here. He, he talks about the importance of teaching this obedience and accountability when he says, imagine a father that comes up to a child and says, hey, I need you to go clean your room. And the child says, okay. And then a week later, the father checks on the room and it's still messy. So he pulls this child in and he goes, wait, I thought I told you to clean your room. And the child says, I know you did, dad, and it was awesome. And I memorized that you told me to go clean that room. In fact, I gathered friends together and we studied extensively about what it would look like for us to go clean our rooms. I can even tell you in the Greek and the Hebrew what it means to go clean our room. And that's what a lot of us do. And at some point the father says, go clean your room. It's obedience, it's accountability. So we need all of those things. We need a community that's gonna lead us to the word and allow us to look at one another and say, how do I apply this to my life? All of that contributes to sound biblical interpretation. Now, I don't have time to go into all the nuances of this, but I'm gonna at least refer to it. We provide all that and try to expose you to all of that through three distinct arenas here at our church. This is the first one, corporate worship, Sunday morning. Right, every time we gather together in this room, in this sanctuary, there is an expression of community teaching and accountability right? that we are going to create and foster with one another. And as meaningful as this time is, and as important as this time is to provide that, all three of those things still have limitations. Right? Your community is only gonna go so deep if this is the only place that you get it. The teaching that you get in this room, while it's gonna have a certain preparation and expertise, man, it's, it's only one directional. 
right? There's limitations there. Accountability, you're gonna hear the greater vision. You're gonna see what you're participating in, but there's really no accountability besides just showing up. You can walk out these doors. We have no clue what you're actually doing. So this is not enough. If this is your only engagement within this church, then you are, you are creating a severely limited ability to understand God's authority for your life and how it should shape and mold you. So that's why we have things like Sunday morning Bible study, another exposure to another level of community, teaching and accountability. And just so you know, we're gonna really emphasize that come the fall. We've kind of gotten through the other side of this pandemic and we've got some plans about what we really want that to look like and we're excited about the ways that that will complement what you get in here by another, another level of a community teaching and accountability, which then ultimately leads to kind of the third most intimate arena, which is our discipleship groups, right? That's the place where it's gonna be a smaller number of people where you're gonna be known and you're gonna know others. And that's gonna be very rich, deep, meaningful community. It's gonna be a place where we unapologetically ask you to only read the word of God because it is important for us to combat biblical illiteracy and read the scripture. That's gonna be the place where accountability really begins to take off because I'm known here and I know others. And I'm gonna be able to be vulnerable and say, I need to work on this in my life. Can you help me work on this in my life? Can I pray for you as you work on these other things? And we need all three of those arenas. And so my encouragement to you pastorally is that we need to really understand the authority of Scripture in our lives. And my hope is that you're engaged not just in one of the three. I'm not giving you options. I'm saying we need all three. And I know it's hard. I know it's a time commitment. I know it's all, but we need all three because authority determines meaning. And when we struggle to engage in the Scripture and the Word of God and allow it to truly guide us in our lives, then we're gonna get the wrong answers to some of these questions. And we're gonna have a life that has a, a warped understanding of meaning. Because the questions that are shaping that meaning are hard and they're significant. Like what should you believe about gun control? Like what is your stance on abortion? How do you understand marriage and sexuality? How should you treat the foreigner in your midst? How do you define justice? Is there hell? Is there an afterlife? Is there heaven? What does it mean to be a good father? What does it mean to be a good mother? How do you raise children? How do I submit to my parents? How do I build friendship? Man, there are some very significant questions that help us understand meaning. And a lot of times what you'll find is that when these questions are asked and you find yourself in a conversation, you're gonna hear a lot of, I think, I feel, my opinion. Which means a lot of people are arriving at meaning to their lives based on feelings and emotions. Feelings and emotions that are very easily influenced by voices of culture that we give an unnecessary level of authority to speak into our lives. Feelings and emotions that are very influenced by cable news and political platforms. There are other people that we really probably shouldn't listen to or things that we read on social media. Right? My son is a phenomenal question asker. A lot of those questions I've referenced, he's asked me. 
And one of the things I've tried to teach him in those conversations is by answering every single one of his questions with a question. What does the Bible say? And then we go to the scripture. Because the Bible is our authority. Now before you think about dismissing the scripture as a legitimate place of authority, right? Well, it's, it's dated, it's ancient, it's contradictory, it's patriarchal, it can't be trusted, whatever you want to say, then let me just ask you, what have you put in its place? Because we're all following some form of an authority. So which one are you following to get the answers to these questions? Like, is it culture? Like, that's going to be where you turn? See, I think for a lot of us, really our answer is ourselves. Well, I'll decide what all those things, how all those things need to be answered. I'll be the one that figures all that out. And that sort of thinking sounds a lot like the garden. And so we need to ask ourselves, what authority am I going to trust? And the privilege it is to come in here and open up a sacred book that has helped derive meaning for people for thousands of years. What a privilege. We should desire it and we should feast on it. Now the reason I'm going to such great lengths to make this part of the opening part of our discussion today is because this is exactly what Paul is about to demonstrate. Right? He's, he's reached a point in this letter where he needs to answer a very difficult question. All right, quick overview, right? He, he opens up with that thesis that I talked about, uh, Romans 1, 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God, the salvation to all who believe. And he le- arrives at that statement that the righteous will live by faith. That's his thesis. But then he uses the rest of chapter one, all of chapter two, and the majority of chapter three to make the argument that, that the wrath of God is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness by those who suppress the truth. Right, And that he kind of explains the nuances of how the law that is written either on our hearts or given to the Jews exposes this un, undeniable verdict that we're all guilty. No one's righteous, not one. That you cannot obtain that righteousness by way of the law. So a new righteousness is revealed to which the law and the prophets testify, a righteousness that comes by faith in Christ Jesus, who was an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And as we talked about last week, because the law makes us aware of sin and our need for saving, it's really not a law of works, it's a law of faith. And so to submit that the righteous should live by faith doesn't nullify the law, it actually upholds the law. This is what Paul has been saying. This is what we've been talking about since we started this series. But here's where Paul is now. He knows that the Jews that are reading this in particular They can be listening to that and say, man, that sounds like a really good argument, Paul, but you know what you haven't done? You haven't shown it to us through Scripture. How do I know the righteous are to live by faith? What's your biblical support? See, for the Jew, there was no question. The Torah was an authority. Paul can talk all he wants, but until he can demonstrate that point from the text, they ain't listening. And that's exactly what he sets out to do next. Let's turn to Romans chapter four and see how he does it. Okay, we're gonna be in Romans chapter four, reading verses one through 17. When we were talking about this in our pre-service meeting this morning, somebody said, that's a lot of verses to cover. And I said, don't worry, it won't take as long as you think. And then somebody said, yeah, it probably will take longer. So we'll see. It really won't take as long as you think, though, I don't think. Okay, let's read it together, verses one through 17. It says, what then shall we say that Abraham our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? 
If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Here's where he's quoting it. He's he's quoting Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. For David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Now he's quoting Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness, but under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised, in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he's then also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless, because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have faith, have the faith of Abraham. For he is the father of us all, as it is written, another scripture reference, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls them to being things that were not. All right, love that passage. Okay, we're going to try to work through these 17 verses fairly quickly, and, and here's the goal. Number one is I hope we're encouraged by the message itself, right? This biblical justification that the righteous live by faith, right? We're about to see how uh, Paul defends that, and, and I hope that that encourages once again by that truth, the righteous live by faith. But I also want this to be an opportunity for us to see how Paul demonstrates that by Scripture, And we can use what Paul does here as a model for how we too should not just read the Bible, but how to read the Bible, right? That we can use this as a model to say, okay, if I'm going to have difficult questions that I need to answer, how do I approach the scripture so that I can hopefully arrive at a thoughtful, sound, biblical interpretation? Paul gives a great example. So we're going to look at both those things somewhat simultaneously. So the first thing that he does here is he points to Abraham, right? The first thing that I want us to think about when when we evaluate what is good, Uh, sound approaches to to solid biblical interpretation is context, okay? Paul uses the perfect context to answer this question. He doesn't turn to Joseph. He doesn't turn to Isaiah. doesn't even turn to Moses. He turns to Abraham because Abraham is the critical figure in the whole biblical narrative that shapes the course of Judaic identity, right? The covenant and the promise begins with Abraham. That's where God chooses his people. Abraham is seen as the father of the nation of Israel, right? And so he's choosing that appropriate place. And you saw there in verse 3, he's going back to Genesis 15, 6, and he's extracted and, and his point is to the very perfect verse that speaks to the question at hand. Righteousness. 
How was it attained? How was it experienced? He goes back to Genesis 15, 6, pointing to Abraham, saying, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so Abraham, or Paul has chosen the perfect context to answer this question. He understands the story. He understands the story and its place within uh, Abraham's life as a whole, but then how Abraham's story fits in the larger biblical narrative as a whole. And so context is critical to sound biblical interpretation. Right? Because Lord knows there have been numerous examples within the church and beyond it of people who have extracted verses completely out of context and used them to justify things that are very contrary to biblical truth. Now, we see that time and time again. Let me give you a recent example uh, that we can point to with some of the momentum that has materialized over the last several years related to the prosperity gospel. Right? So the prosperity gospel is the idea that, that a lot of people buy into, which is I'm gonna take the gospel and now I'm gonna attach to it the idea that, that God actually wants me to experience in this life health, wealth, and prosperity. Right? Like there are all these materialistic things that are gonna be added unto me if I have the right faith. And this is something people buy into all the time. Why? Because they want health, wealth, and prosperity. So it's an easy sell. But the way it gets sold is by taking scripture out of context. Let me give you a couple of examples of how scripture can be used out of context to make that point. John 10.10 would be one verse that a lot of folks would refer to that buy into this idea. John 10.10 says this. This is Jesus speaking. You don't have to turn there. You can just listen. Jesus speaks to his disciples saying, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full or in other translations, may have life abundantly. And so what do we do? We take that verse out of context and we say, see that, man? Jesus wants to fill your life with money and health and prosperity and all these incredible things that's right there. He wants you to have life and have it to the full, life abundantly. And the problem with that is that that's completely out of context. That if you read John chapter 10, the whole discussion is about Jesus being the good shepherd. We are his sheep. He speaks, and the sheep know the sound of his voice. And so the full life, the abundant life, has nothing to do with materialistic things and everything to do with being known knowing Jesus, to know his voice and to have a relationship with him. That's where you find a full life. It has nothing to do with materialistic things. Jeremiah 29, 11 is another one. I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand if it's your favorite verse, but... I know it's a lot of people's favorite verse. I think it was my grandmother's favorite verse, and, or one of her several favorite verses. Right? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. It's beautiful. It's good. So we, we put it on coffee mugs and T-shirts. We love it. But the problem is, is that we often take it out of context because we kind of receive it as like a personal note to ourselves, like God wrote that just for you. And, and hey, in some ways, I'm okay with that. But, but the challenge there is that, again, if you look at the context, it wasn't written to a singular you, it was written to a plural you. It was written to the people of Israel while they were in exile, right? So they're in captivity, and so through the prophet Jeremiah, the word of the Lord is saying, hey, there's going to be a time where I'm gonna bring you up out of Israel. You do have, or out of exile. You do have a future. I am going to restore you as a people. So it's really about the nation of Israel and their restoration out of exile. But what we'll do is we'll, we'll extract that, we'll personalize it, and then we'll latch on to words like prosper. There it is again. He wants you to be prosperous. He wants you to have all these materialistic gains. And we take it out of context. 
And so we'll take verses out of context and we'll, we'll kind of create a whole different understanding of different terms like abundance and prosperity and blessing and we'll create something that is very anti-biblical and we'll conveniently skip over all the passages in scripture that speak to suffering for the name of Jesus. And so it happens all the time. Context is critical to sound biblical interpretation. Right? And, and Abraham has, or excuse me, Paul has demonstrated that by choosing the story of Abraham in the particular verse and understanding its place in all of it. So one of the things I would encourage you and challenge you, never just read a verse in isolation. Right? Always go back and ask yourself, what does this verse mean in its immediate context? And then what does that immediate context mean in the larger biblical context? And Paul further demonstrates that later as he starts bringing in additional biblical verses. Now the next step that he does is now he really works on terminology, okay? And he focuses in on two particular words that are found in Genesis 15, 6, the words credited and the words believed, okay? Now I'm probably gonna interchange the word credited with reckoning, that's another way to translate it, and part of the reason I'm gonna do that is because it's just hard for me to say credited. Every time I do it, I like say it multiple times and add more syllables, so I probably will try to interchange that. Uh, but anyway, he focuses on terminology and says, I wanna make sure you have a good understanding of what these words actually mean, right? Similar to people that can misunderstand the words abundance and prosper and all those other things, he's gonna make sure that you have a biblical understanding of credited and believed. So he starts with the discussion on credited, reckoning, and he equates it to wages, right? And he says, listen, if you are reckoned something or credited something because you worked for it, that's a wage and that comes out of obligation, Right? Because you've done something by works, that person is obligated to give something to you. But that is not how God works. Right? God credits the ungodly. Now that's a very interesting reference point, and, and I believe because of the context, he's referring again to Abraham. Because part of what he's about to unpack is that in Genesis 15, 6, this was before the law, this was before circumcision, this was before Isaac was asked to be sacrificed. It was before all of it. And so by all intents and purposes, Abraham was a Gentile. He was ungodly. He, he wasn't following the law. He wasn't circumcised. He didn't have any of those things. And yet God reckoned him, credited him to be righteous. And so Paul's point here is that when you see the word reckoned, it is never applied in terms of obligation, but as a gift. Right? That's what he does. He, he credits the ungodly. It's a gift. Now, he further brings that point home by bringing in additional scripture. Now, pointing to David, he quotes Psalm 32. The difference here is that with Abraham, he's talking about how God reckons uh, righteousness. But with David, he's talking about how God reckons forgiveness and credits forgiveness. And that's really, again, his main point. He's bringing in Psalm 32 to say that when God credits someone, when he reckons something, it is by mercy, it is by grace, it is a gift, it is not out of obligation. Right? And so when we see that word, we need to make sure it's not a word that we earned, it's a word that comes through a measure of grace and, for, or, and mercy. Right? And so that's how he begins to define that term. Now he balances that out with a discussion on believed. How was it? What was it that Abraham did that, that initiated or instigated this reckoning, this crediting by God? Well, it was not based in works. It was based in belief. Now, this is a really interesting progression that, that Paul utilizes here because he's going to narrow this point in on the subject of circumcision. And this is a very important and, and very justifiable approach. In fact, no Jew 
would criticize this way of thinking because circumcision was the seal. It was the sign of covenantal loyalty, right? Like it, it was the marker of distinction from Jew, from Gentile, right? It, it was the, the standard of what it meant to be Jewish and to be a part of the covenant and to demonstrate covenantal loyalty. And so here's what Paul's doing. He's challenging their, their standard understanding of Abraham, right? For Abraham, for the Jew, Abraham was the picture of works-based righteousness because he was circumcised, because he didn't sacrifice his son Isaac and all these things that demonstrated his faithful obedience to the covenant. And so for them, Abraham was the picture. And what Paul's doing is saying, I'm about to show you that you've misinterpreted his story the whole time. Right, that those things did not happen and that that's why God brought forth righteousness, but you've misunderstood the nature of the story. And his answer is super simple. His, his answer is this, when did it happen? When, when was he circumcised? Before he was blessed to be righteous or after? Did Genesis 15 come before Genesis 17 or after it? It's a very simple question. Scholars would tell you that they think it was about 14 years difference between the two. And so his whole point is very simple. Man, the blessing of God actually began, if anything, in Genesis 12 when he called him to go. And he gave him the promise that he'd become the father of many nations. That's when it started. And because he had faith in those things, circumcision came as a seal and as a sign of the faith he already had. It, it was not something he earned, but something that identified something he already carried through faith. And so with that being said, he is now explaining that Abraham serves as the perfect picture of righteousness that comes by faith. And so the question is not, can Gentiles be a part? It's really a question of how do you, whether you are Jew or Gentile, find the same righteousness based on Abraham's example? And that's what he explains. He says, listen, if, if God credited Abraham as being righteous before he was circumcised, then anyone that currently, who is not circumcised, all these, these Gentiles, they too can come together and experience that same righteousness if they carry the same faith. Similarly, even if you are a Jew and you are marked with circumcision, you still have to come, not because of that mark, but you have to come by the same faith that Abraham demonstrated. It all happens by faith which leads him to expound upon the implications of the promise itself. He says the promise didn't come by law. If it came by law, and we've seen that the law brings about wrath because it makes us aware of sins, then all of a sudden the promise is emptied of its power. It is worthless. But the promise comes by faith. It is a gift that is bestowed upon each and every one of us. And so it is only by faith that we get a chance to experience the promise of God. And he demonstrates that by saying, because we can see that faith on display in Abraham, let me give you one more scriptural piece to, to put this puzzle together. If he's supposed to be the father of many nations, then if it's only by works in the law, then he's really only the father of the Jews who have the law and those who submit to its covenant rituals. But if you can become a, a follower or, or find that righteousness by the same faith, then that mean this, means the Gentiles have an opportunity to be seen uh, in that same light and that he becomes the father not just of the Jews but of the Gentiles. So he is not a father of one nation but of many nations. 
And so with three different scriptural references, Paul has systematically walked through how the scripture supports this thesis that the righteous will live by faith. And it's a beautiful example for you and me, right? To understand context, to understand terminology. And there's one final ingredient that he uses to make his case that I wanna use as our conclusion. One final piece that I just, I love that just ties it all together. After he lays all that out and the implications of the promise, he arrives at a place where he reminds them of the character of God. And that to me is another huge component for us to having sound biblical interpretation, right? What we understand, where we find meaning, when we seek answer to these questions according to biblical guidance, it has to co-align or it has to align with God's character, right? Like if we ever walk away with an understanding that is contrary to the nature and the character of God, then, then it's not likely rooted in scripture. If, if you answer a question that somehow suggests that God's character is distant, unloving, uncaring, then it's probably not rooted in scripture. Because we see time and time again, the, the Lord is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He does not let the guilty go unpunished. There's a justice there, but there's a grace there. We see it in Exodus, we see it in the Psalms, we see it time and time again. So we have to ask ourselves, is the interpretation that I have, is the answer to this question I have consistent with the character of God? And that's what Paul drives home. Right? He makes this, this beautiful statement about the promise that this is, this is what Abraham believed and this is in whom he believed, this God. And then there's the description, the God who brings life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Can I get an amen to that? The God who brings life to the dead and calls into existence things that were not. That's who our God is. Now that would have really landed with the Jewish audience. They had these 18 benedictions that were part of their daily prayers. And the second benediction in there, really the theme of it was God bringing life to the dead. So he's calling upon something that is very inherent to the Judaic way of life. The idea of, of God calling into existence things that were not, well, that, that speaks to a very common belief within Hellenistic Judaism, right? So he's bringing up these tenets of what they say they believe about their God, and he's using that attribute, those characteristics of God and his character to say this supports this same view. Now, let me, let me make the connection for you, because by evoking that statement, a God who brings life to the dead and calls into existence things that were not, is, is pointing once again to God as creator, Right, that, that the whole message of creation is that all creatures are dependent upon the creator. Right, like, like the dead have no power. God gives them life. Right, that which didn't exist has no authority. God brings it into existence. So the whole message, the whole understanding of God as creator suggests we have to be fully dependent upon him. And that's part of what probably grieved Paul, right, is that he's seen the mistake is being repeated, that part of what took place in the garden was this idea that I don't have to depend on God. I can be independent from him. That was the mistake that created the fall. And now they're falling into it once again, saying if you think you can earn this by works, then what you're saying is that you don't have to depend upon God. And that negates the very understanding of his character and his essence. We always have to depend on him. He is never in our debt. The dead cannot 
obligate God to themselves. That which doesn't exist cannot obligate a creator to do something for them. It's always by faith. What a powerful reminder. And one that I hope, as I said earlier, encourages each of us this morning. Right, that we don't just stop and learn again, what does it mean to read the Bible? How do I need to read the Bible? And take away these examples that Paul's given us of understanding context, terminology, the character of God. But to be encouraged again of just the weight and significance of understanding the righteous live by faith. It is not based on what you do. And when we come into this room and we're overwhelmed with our own mistakes or we come into certain seasons and we remember just how desperate we are in need of the mercy of God, we can come together and say that's exactly what it is, mercy. Not by merit, but by mercy. And we give him praise because this is who our God is. I want you to leave here today fully aware of the God that you serve. When he speaks, galaxies are formed. When he speaks, creatures catch their breath. And when you are overwhelmed in life and the darkness feels stronger by a struggle that's maybe internal to your own soul or just the darkness you see in the world around you and you see your own failures or the failures of mankind, you come once again before this creator and you realize that when he speaks, failures disappear. Right? That, that this is the God who loved us so rich in mercy that he sent his one and only son to die on our behalf so that we could experience this mercy and grace and truth. And then when Jesus resurrected from the dead, when he came to life, when he emptied the tomb of its power, it was one more reminder that our God is the God who brings life to the dead. And if God has raised this Jesus, he will raise us as well. This is the God that we serve, one who brings life to the dead and calls into existence things that we're not. May he be the authority of our lives. May we listen to his word above all else and let it give us the meaning we so desperately want and need. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. And we pray that you would watch over us now as we continue to worship you, but worship you not just in this room, but beyond it. Help us to once again be reminded of the power of your word, the authority that it is to have over each and every one of us, so that it can help us answer so many of the questions that we wrestle with that it can give us the meaning that we so desperately seek. And God, may we assign that meaning to, to not just thoughts and feelings, but to the authority that we find in you. Help us to be those who are fully dependent upon you in all aspects of life, never forgetting, God, that you are one who truly brings life to the dead and calls into existence things that are not. We love you, Father, and we pray this all in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. And amen. So my thought this morning 